Welcome to this special edition of Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This time, I am having a discussion with Stephen Blank from the Foreign Policy Research Institute, Michael Peterson, uh, Director of the Russian Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College, and Sam Bendit, an advisor with the Center for Naval Analysis Russia Studies Program. Steve, Mike, and Sam are the authors of papers on developments in the Russian military that we are publishing in conjunction with the podcast, and which you should also read. And they joined us today to talk about how they view the Russian military's developing operational concepts and capabilities, and what it means for the United States and its allies. I hope you find it interesting and illuminating. Let's get started. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us. You wrote a paper for this series about a Russian global expeditionary force. Where did this aspiration for Russia to have a global force come from, and how new is it? I think the aspiration goes back at least to 2003, although the capabilities for it have only grown in the more recent past. If you look at the uh, 2003 white paper, Urgent Tasks as Development of Russian Military Forces, there are isolated mentions of the need for the Russian military to be able to fight local war. There are many mentions about fighting local wars, but there are isolated mentions about taking part in conflicts beyond the Russian border. UN peacekeeping, which was a big issue at the time. But also, clearly, Russia wanted to be able to project forces abroad or has had the aspiration to do so. So that's where it comes from, but in practical terms. But politically, it's very clear that this is a way for Moscow to assert itself as a great global power. And we have to understand that this is a driving motive of a lot of Russian foreign and defense policy in in general. We've seen pretty clear examples of Russian power projection in the immediate neighborhood in places like Ukraine, as well as, of course, Syria. But is there any broader kind of geographic logic to where Russia is projecting power using this new global capability? Well, there are a, a number of points of geostrategic or geopolitical logic. One, Syria, which is not really in the neighborhood. I mean, if, I mean, if you consider the difference between Soviet borders and Russian Federation borders, uh, the Middle East is not nearly as close as it was under the Soviet Union. And uh, it's as much, a his, I think, a historic phenomenon that having conquered Ukraine, Russia then projects power into the Middle East. Uh, this goes back to Catherine the Great. For example, in 1773, Russian fleet shelled the Beirut and actually occupied the area for a while. There are other cases in point. Beyond that, the aspiration, the geostrategic logic is that as a great global power, it tries to project power where it can gain influence and gain an advantage. Uh, And in many respects, it is also looking just simply to strike at the United States or at our allies in Europe. For example, Venezuela, very clear motive, not the only one by any means, but a clear motive is to show the United States that we can project power into the Caribbean and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So now um, let me move to Mike Peterson, who uh, wrote a paper about the Russian Navy. Mike, the Navy, of course, plays a huge role in Russian global power projection. Can you talk about how the Navy has uh, developed new capabilities, what those capabilities are for, and how it fits into this broader strategy that Steve was talking about? 
Certainly. I think that uh, one of the two of the Navy's sort of more traditional missions going back to the Soviet period were, of course, providing a survivable second nuclear strike and uh, defending the maritime approaches to the Soviet Union and now Russia. More recently, it has added a wartime mission, which is uh, this idea of attacking critical infrastructure targets uh, among its adversaries. And that's something that I think has been moderately successful in doing, though uh, it cannot yet do so globally. Now, it's, it's, it's founding documents, actually. Uh, I shouldn't say it's founding documents. Rather, it's uh, guiding documents actually sort of mandate, they, they've written into doctrine that the Navy will uh, conduct this global counter-infrastructure mission globally. Now, they're not there yet, but they certainly can do so uh, around the European landmass and uh, local uh, oceans, the near seas, as the Russians call it. And their capability for doing so is under development, right? Um, now, these platforms that they're building now weren't originally designed for such a mission, but I think that Russia has, Russian strategic thinking has uh, evolved to the point where they believe that this is possible and they're adapting their platforms to do so. And what are some of the key platforms, some of the key technologies that the Russian Navy is building in order to undertake these counter critical infrastructure missions? Well, I think uh, the sort of central weapon in all of this, of course, is the caliber cruise missile. And what they're doing is uh, is building platforms in the Navy that can actually launch this missile against land targets, right? So it does have an anti-ship capability and there's a land attack variant. And what the what the Russian Navy is doing is attempting to to utilize the land attack variant to hit these targets. Now, the key uh, platform is, of course, the famous Severodvinsk submarine, the nuclear powered uh, SSGN cruise missile shooting submarine that provides a significant sort of global countercritical infrastructure piece. But right now, there's only one of those. Importantly for Europeans, there are a number of smaller surface platforms that have been under development, uh, including corvettes and coastal uh, defense ships that are actually capable of, uh, quite capable of uh, shooting caliber cruise missiles against European targets. So there are a number of different platforms. Uh, Mike Kaufman has called this distributed classality. That is, there are a number of different classes of ships that can do this, and Russia shows no sign of actually of, of actually slowing down that kind of development of, of a number of different kind of small platforms that can carry out that mission. So, among the technological capabilities that Russia is developing in this context are unmanned underwater vehicles or UUVs. Could you talk a little bit about how the technology has developed and what role it plays in this countercritical infrastructure mission? Certainly, of course, the most famous UUV that the Russians have been developing recently is the is the Poseidon uh, nuclear powered unmanned underwater vehicle. This uh, this weapon that's designed to sort of float out from who knows some bastion in the Barents Sea and swim out on its own to uh, some critical infrastructure target on the east coast of the U.S. where it can sort of lie in wait and uh, be activated upon command. Uh, that is a nuclear powered nuclear weapon. That is under development now. Now, I'm a bit skeptical that uh, Russia is going to develop this in any kind of serious numbers, though uh, there is some debate over that. I, I'm not even convinced that this is going to wind up being a successful weapon. But the larger point is that uh, this fits uh, pretty well into the Russian concept of strategic deterrence. That is this idea that they can use maritime forces 
and a crisis deterrence role, and then a, and then in a war fighting role against these critical infrastructure targets. Okay, let me move now to Sam Bendit, whose paper is on unmanned vehicle development in the Russian military. Sam, could you talk about the role that not just uh, UUVs, but other kinds of unmanned vehicles play in current Russian military doctrine and what missions they're specifically focused on? Absolutely. Uh, I think the biggest success that Russia has had over the past decade was the increasing use and successful use of unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Ten years ago, Russia had very few such uh, UAVs to augment its forces. Uh, Russia's uh, entry into the Syrian war and its increasing use of its various forces there uh, really facilitated the development and introduction of UAVs for the Russian forces. Prior to Russia's involvement in Syria, you can say that the Russian military used mostly manned assets um, for ISR, or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. With the introduction of UAVs, uh, Russia was able to safeguard these manned assets and just use unmanned systems in dangerous missions for scoping out uh, the adversary and then relaying that information in real time to the artillery and, uh, and other forces. When it comes to unmanned ground vehicles and, uh, and uh, unmanned underwater vehicles, a lot of these concepts are kind of still in development and are probably years away from the eventual introduction into the Russian forces. Uh, unmanned underwater systems, uh, some of the smaller ones are used for surveying the seafloor, monitoring the, the immediate vicinity of vessels or port areas. Uh, unmanned ground vehicles are now going through a lot of testing by the uh, Ministry of Defense to determine whether they could successfully serve as uh, as guardians of uh, Russian bases, or they can serve as ISR, sort of intelligence gathering assets, or if they can even serve as combat assets. Russia actually took several such unmanned ground vehicles to Syria to test them out. They were very successful with using unmanned ground vehicles for demining operations and cleaning up unexploded ordnance. When it came to actually testing out combat unmanned ground vehicles, Russians ran in, into a couple of problems. But overall, um, Russia basically chucks its experience up to um, the development phase, meaning whatever failure or success was achieved in uh, using such um, systems in Syria is going to be built upon, learned from, and incorporated into the future concept of operations. So what are the implications of these developments for the United States and for NATO based on what we've seen from Russia's use of these unmanned systems in Syria and elsewhere? To what extent do they pose a threat and how can the U.S. and, and NATO take steps to, to check that threat? So the biggest threat is the fact that Russia is now changing the way it fights. For the longest time, and probably for several decades after the end of the uh, of the Cold War, United States was the dominant force in using unmanned assets in combat and uh, in battle, and it basically had a monopoly on concept of operations. It didn't have to worry about adversaries using similar systems. Now, uh, Russian Federation, along with other countries like China, Iran, and other states are starting to use same type of assets for uh, augmenting uh, their ground operations. Uh, now, Russia doesn't have unmanned combat UAVs like the Predator or the Global Hawk that extend United States military reach globally into practically any part of the world, but Russia is working on developing such systems as well. With Russian forces uh, being able to see better and to see faster, 
the speed of response changes drastically. Russia has also been able to take advantage of its uh, strength in electronic warfare and matching that with their existing unmanned aerial vehicle platforms to create a potent EW force that could be deployed at a tactical level against Russia's adversaries. So what we're seeing is uh, Russia trying to, on one hand, match the strengths of the United States and NATO in developing more sophisticated combat UAVs, and on the other hand, really building upon mass introduction of smaller, cheaper ISR assets in combat that enable Russian forces to very quickly orient themselves in combat. Now, one thing that Russians don't have is the defense against um, American precision-guided missiles, or PGMs. But Russians are thinking through how to kind of utilize their future unmanned um, aerial vehicles and other systems to, to counter American advantage and PGMs. So I think the entire, I guess the entire combat picture now changes drastically with the United States slowly losing its monopoly with most advanced weapon systems to adversaries that are capable of introducing similar or even weaker systems to the greater benefit of these adversarial forces. Okay, great. Let me now open this up to, to everybody. I think we've heard from your discussions and we've seen in the papers that you've all written that the Russian military is developing both new missions and new capabilities in ways that challenge the interests and the presumed superiority of the U.S. and its allies. So how then, as we think about this challenge in the future, what are the steps that the U.S. needs to take in order to more effectively cope with both Russia's expanded global vision of where it seeks to be militarily active, as well as the new capabilities and new technologies that the Russian military is developing for this mission? Let me kick this off then. I think what United States is doing currently is definitely working. That is, uh, no other country around the world right now has the same technological and industrial and high-tech capacity as the United States. And in fact, Russia, in its, um, in its briefings and its announcements and its discussions within their military, always looks at United States over its shoulder because it understands that United States has a certain overmatch. But a certain overmatch is possible in a certain type of conflict. In other types of conflict, um, even smaller and cheaper systems can present a significant challenge to military like the United States. Capacity to kind of uh, bring its military industrial base up to the challenge is unrivaled and unchallenged. And so the Department of Defense should continue reaching out to the private sector, should continue to reaching out into the high-tech community to look for solutions. And if solutions are available, as they often are, the Department of Defense should strive for a quicker introduction of such solutions into American forces. And that's already happening. The process is ongoing. I think the problem we're encountering is a bit of a mirror imaging because Russians are now starting to realize that the same processes could apply to them because the, the Ministry of Defense in Russia is also proving to be flexible in certain areas in reaching out to its military industrial base and then looking for solutions as well. I think a lot of the American solutions up until now were built to kind of face the adversaries that were technologically inferior. Now we're seeing some of the adversarial forces, like Russian forces, really make significant strides in certain areas that could potentially 
match United States on an equal basis. But again, U.S. overmatch, its high-tech overmatch is unrivaled. And I think it will continue to be unrivaled for the next several decades. The question is, can the United States properly and adequately use this overmatch and its capabilities to uh, reorient itself for the fight that's coming, the future war, the war where other adversaries uh, also have high-tech aspects? Okay. Uh, Steve, Mike, do you want to weigh in on this? I'll jump into this. The problem is that war is not just going to be fought by technological systems in a kinetic manner. Uh, We all know about information and cyber strikes and how astutely Russia uses those on a permanent basis as instruments of warfare. I mean, my paper only deals with the conventional military arm. But I think what we need to do to reply to the uh, ongoing multidimensional efforts by Russia to undermine the international order that came out of the 1990, the end of the Cold War, is really that we have to do better at building alliances because we cannot just send American forces over to Africa or Latin America or the Middle East. We have to do better at getting our allies to participate with us and in building stronger domestic structures in these areas through economic and political means with a smaller military footprint in order to give these societies the means to prevent the domestic threats developing within them that Russia can then exploit. Especially after the coronavirus, there's going to be enormous pressure on defense spending. Now, how that resolves, nobody knows. But I think the fact is pretty clear because there's going to be an enormous pent-up demand to do something about the economic reconstruction that has to take place, healthcare expenditure, and so on. And so European and American defense budgets will come under pressure. So will the Russian defense budget. Uh, I, I would agree with Steve on that. I, I, sorry, I, I just I don't mean to interrupt, Steve, but I would I, I would I would agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I think that even from the maritime perspective here, um, U.S. and allied militaries uh, need to pursue um, damage limitation strategies, right? That are going to that are going to involve uh, a not insignificant amount of investment. Um, the, the the need in Europe certainly is most urgent. I I think that. There's going to be a need for investments in distributed logistics and infrastructure upgrades uh, and even modest upgrades in air defense capabilities uh, so that there is some kind of resiliency and redundancy in place that can also take advantage of the fact that those small ships I was talking about earlier um, generate also generate small salvos of these long-range PGMs, right? But I think European and U.S. militaries also have to become more comfortable working inside Russia's anti-access bubble, right? These these angry red lines that are actually, I think, proving to be somewhat more penetrable than what we initially thought uh, maybe five or so years ago. The other stage of this is actually, of course, lives in the U.S. This is the United States is going to need to invest, I think, in improved undersea warfare technology, particularly um, wide area um, sonar search capabilities that can kind of operate in the open ocean, uh, more of its own UUVs, and also that that can operate along the U.S. littorals. We think that these, as as Russia develops this capability to conduct countercritical infrastructure missions against the U.S., it's likely to be done again, with um, nuclear-powered submarines that can fire cruise missiles. So we'll need these sort of wide area search capabilities, both fixed and, and mobile, to identify and track these platforms. Yeah, but I, and to finish the thought, I mean, we're going to have to work with allies so that they can carry the ball, not only in Europe, but I mean, allies and partners in the third world where Russia has done this, so that we don't have to send American forces, even in small numbers, say, to the Middle East or Africa or so on, because it's enormously expensive, it's a tremendous logistical burden, and if these countries are capable of 
defending themselves better than has been the case, let's say, up to now, that reduces the burden on us, and it makes it harder for the Russians to get in there, and it also eases the pressure on defense spending, because you can't, you know, as Frederick the Great said, he who tries to defend everything defends nothing. Steve made a very important point, but uh, the problem with a lot of our allies is that when it comes to the actual comparison to the strength and the capability of American forces, they're definitely far behind. And so they don't have a lot of the capabilities we would like them to have. They're years away from establishing such capabilities. Even when they pull the resources together, there are some bright spots here and there, like Estonia. The little Estonia punches above its weight in development of unmanned combat ground vehicles. But that's an exception and not the rule. So a lot of our allies are, in fact, not capable of replacing U.S. forces technologically uh, around the world in meeting those challenges. And Russia has an overmatch, a significant overmatch in some areas when it comes to uh, American European allies. Now, Russia doesn't want to have that type of war. It understands that any conflict with NATO means conflict with the United States. But our allies, while willing, are also um, years away from establishing the type of capabilities where United States will allow them to lead in a specific conflict and combat. And Steve is right. He who defends everything defends nothing. At the same time, there isn't really anyone who can step in in place of the United States in some of these challenges. And I think that's that's a problem the United well, States I, will have to grapple with. I would answer that, Sam, and say you're, you're absolutely right. But that should not be a cause for saying, OK, you know, let's just keep the ball rolling the way it is. I mean, the status quo has to change. And it has to, the leadership for that has to be led by the United States. And that's not happening. We all know what, what the strains are between the U.S. and its allies, either in Europe or in Asia, where, of course, the threat is more likely China. But the point is that from a strategic point of view, strategy is not just about building better capabilities. It's about be building better political and military alliances as well. And there is no reason that with a proper leadership focus and coordination that we can begin, I emphasize begin because Sam is absolutely right here, to get better thinking about from the allies as to what can be done in the way of security. And it can help their economics. Uh, for example, NATO's rapid air mobility capability is now being deployed to bring medical supplies where needed. So we see here that you can build up that rapid air mobility and it has immense importance in a civilian pandemic crisis like what we're seeing today. Vice versa is building up transportation infrastructure. General Hodges has talked about that in Europe uh, to get people and, and logistics to the front more quickly than is the case now. So this is strategically as well as I would say politically necessary. Post 17th, Macron had a um, interview in the Financial Times saying this is the testing hour of the European Union. Well, in that respect, it's also to some degree NATO, because unless the allies show more solidarity with each other and we show more solidarity with them, then our alliances are going to erode. And that's going to be an irrevocable development unless there is a change in policy. That's a much bigger political strategic question, hopefully one that we'll be able to do uh, another podcast series on. Anybody have some final thoughts that they want to add? This is a very interesting discussion about allied capabilities and how they've been sort of shaped in response to Russia's activity in the last several years, particularly in the military uh, domain. I do think that there have been a number of um, positive developments in terms of allied capabilities, but, the, but it's also important that we don't oversell 
current Russian military capabilities. One of the reasons why I've been thinking a lot about Russia's countercritical infrastructure mission is because I'm generally not satisfied with the discussion about Russian naval modernization, for example. That debate has essentially been pretty binary, right? Uh, the question is, has Russian naval modernization been successful or has it been unsuccessful? And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle here. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make with this countercritical infrastructure discussion is that, yes, Russia has developed some capabilities on this front, but they're not where they want to be. And they're slowly moving in that direction. Uh, the question is, when will they get there if they get there at all? And I think that last point can be kind of extrapolated out into the broader uh, realm of Russian military capabilities. Uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, loose talk, not in not on this podcast, but among other people about um, how quickly Russia is developing its military capabilities and how extraordinarily powerful they're going to be. I think we need to be very careful to calibrate what the Russians themselves are saying they're going to do against what it is that they're actually capable of doing within the next five to ten years. Yeah, I think that's a very useful caution, and it applies not only to military technology, but it applies to things like information operations and various other forms of Russian coercive power as well. I think in part, we're no longer used to being in a rather competitive international environment where we face, if not peer, then at least near-peer competitors who can do some of the same things that we can. Uh, and so there's there's a certain tendency to oversell uh, some of those capabilities, whether technological, political, subversive, or, or otherwise. And while I think the adaptation to this more competitive environment is a process and it's politically difficult, it's something that a lot of American analysts and politicians struggle with, I think, Mike, the, the note of caution that you inject there is also a very important one, that as we are adapting to that world, one in which there are great power rivals and there is strategic competition, we remain realistic about both the nature and the extent of the challenge that those great power rivals pose and that we don't allow ourselves to be drawn into, you know, needlessly spending money or, or building capabilities that we don't need because we are um, panicking about um, the things that, that Russia or China or anybody else is doing. Jeff, I'd like to add uh, something here as a follow-up to Mike's comment. I think Mike is absolutely right. I also want to add that we should not underestimate the degree to which some of our adversaries like Russia are becoming flexible in their technological and tactical response to military mm -hmm. challenges. And I'm specifically citing Russia's example in Syria. The Russian military's evolution in Syria is one of a force that was essentially, you know, the force that went in in 2015 and the force that is there now in 2020 are essentially two different militaries. Mm -hmm. And Russia's flexibility, uh, the MOD's flexibility in seeking certain technological military solutions has been nothing short of remarkable. Objective but not only technological, but in terms of operational concept. Correct, well. correct. And so I think there's still a bit of a nostalgic desire to see Russia as a military force of the 1990s, this sort of large, inflexible, rusty beast Mm -hmm. But Russia is proving that vision wrong with each passing year in Syria, because what it was able to accomplish with what it had in Syria and what kind of new capabilities it was capable of kind of uh, standing up, again, shows that the MOD can be flexible, could be flexible. And if it wants to, it could really surprise the United States if it needs to. 
Yeah, which brings me back to the old observation that, rather, that Russia is neither ever so strong as it seems nor so weak as it seems. Right. That's, that's true. But we also have to remember, and I think you know, my paper mentions it, but I think it's also true for Sam and Mike's papers. They lay down very ambitious goals for themselves, which they cannot be attained in the immediate future. But their activities are oriented towards reaching those ambitious goals over the long term. We have to keep that balance in mind at all points, as Michael has said, that, that what they are is not necessarily what they want to be or say they are. But as Sam has pointed out, and analysts need to keep this in mind, we have to understand that they don't think about warfare the way we do, and that their concepts and uh, tactical, operational, and their whole concept of what contemporary warfare is are extremely serious and insightful, even if they're not from our point of view and should not, therefore, be dismissed in a cavalier fashion. And too often that's the case. We have too much ethnocentrism in the U.S. about thinking about warfare, and these guys have a lot to teach us. Yeah, and I think it's also worth keeping in mind that this is a dynamic environment and that the nature of the technological and strategic balance in 2020 is not necessarily what it's going to be in 2021 or 2025 or 2030. Yeah, and nobody knows what's going to come out of the coronavirus. Yeah, that's also a big uncertainty right now. Steve, Mike, Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Be well and stay safe. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Roxana. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Roxana. Okay, thanks for joining. That's it for the show today. You can find a link to all the guest bios and also to the volume where their papers are published in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, or you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play and or SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, as always, big thanks to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks, stay safe, and be healthy.